Hey there. Welcome to Twins Talk Clear-Cut Communication. Yes, we are twins. And yes, we are two old guys who should know better than to try to tackle the topic of communication in a podcast. But we're going to do it anyway, and hopefully you'll find it informative and maybe even enjoyable. Hey, we're coming to you from Badwater, California today, Bear. Badwater, California. Just moved a little bit south on the West Coast, and I just thought it was a cool name. It is a cool name. Yeah. Although they have, now, does California have the water shortages or is it a little bit east of them? Well, I think they've had water shortages, but I think they're actually now in a problem where they may be getting too much water in some places. So I hope it's not in bad water. So some of it's just bad. The water's clearly bad there. I mean, I got to believe that's where that name came from. They just had some bad water. Well, last episode, spent some time laying out what we thought was a way of describing communication situations that tend to really be emotionally charged. And so we went through a variety of situations and talked our way through what are some of the situations and thought today, Bear, maybe to come back and focus on that one in which people feel under attack. And that's not totally unique, but I think of emotionally charged situations that is worth addressing. You with me on that? I am. I think anytime you feel under attack, that represents an obstacle to effective communication. You cannot effectively communicate if you feel under attack and don't have a strategy or an approach that can get you out from underneath that. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about those kinds of things, I think when we say something is emotionally charged, we're just saying it just cranks up the emotion. There's something going on there that brings the emotion up to a higher level than any of us would like. And so now we've got to deal with that aspect of the communication situation. And when I was thinking through this notion of if I'm in a situation where I'm feeling under attack, I've really got one of three options. And I was really trying to think there's got to be more, but not really. Uh, One option is attack back. (laughs) And we've all been there. Go on the offense. Yeah, go on the offense where you feel under attack and you have this emotional reaction. It says, I'm not going to stand for that. I'm going to attack back. I'm not going to let you get away with that. There's all kinds of rationale that we use. But the bottom line is when we feel under attack, we just decide, as you've said, we're going to go on the offense. We're going to attack back. I think that another alternative response is to withdraw, to disengage, essentially to create space. And what I mean by that is to genuinely create physical space. That is to walk away from the situation, to say, let's bring this up next week when cooler heads might prevail. So let's just take a timeout. And oftentimes we'll hear that phrase. We're going to take a timeout and we'll come back and grab this later. Now, I think you've got, as we talked about this, a strategy for creating an internal distance, but staying in the game. Right. The last, that fits in the category, in my mind, is coming up with strategies to address the charged nature of the communication in the moment. So that it's not a case that we're going to walk away from this. Maybe we can't get away from it, but I'm going to try to address it in the moment. And that's where we want to spend our time. No reason to talk about attack back. People can attack any way they want. My reaction is just be aware that if you attack back, essentially it's a cathartic experience because you're not going to get outcomes that you really want by going on the attack. So I would say this, that if people think, well, one way of dealing, feeling that I'm under attack is to attack back and that'll straighten the other person out. You need to let go of that feeling. Well, to me, there is one potential positive if you attack back, and that is you're drawing a line. You're Mm -hmm. creating a boundary and you're essentially telling this person that's not a place you can go safely between us and get away with it. Mm -hmm. So when, when someone attacks back, 
or responds with some level of aggression if it's not an, even an attack, if it's just a, a response of minimal aggression to kind of put a hands up and say, you can't come here. You can't go that far. Mm-hmm. You can't go beyond that. Uh, you do create a boundary. It doesn't mean someone's going to honor it. It doesn't mean the next time you engage with this person, they're going to honor that boundary you created. But it does mean you set a limit. Hmm. You said this is a place where you cannot go. Now, let me explore with you because where I was thinking about attacking back is meaning I'm going to go on the offensive. I'm not just simply drawing a boundary. I'm not just simply drawing a limit to what they can say and do, which lets them know in any future communication, you cross that line. We're going to be back to the same place. But I'm actually talking about attacking back. That is, I'm going to be more aggressive than you are. I'm going to go on the offense and really put you in your place. Any distinction there for you in terms of the notion of drawing boundaries and actually going on the attack? Or are they essentially tantamount to the same thing? Well, going on the attack in return would say to me, you've upped the energy level you're willing to expend mm-hmm. to exchange in this conversation. So that's what it feels like to me to go on the offense. You're not going to concede. You're not going to emotionally withdraw. You're not going to keep your energy level at a lower level. You're going to jack it up and come back at that individual with that energy level. Now, you may not use attack language. You may not become uh, verbally abusive. You may not attempt to have that person feel under attack. But it is a statement that this is now a line that's been drawn in the sand. And I'm not going to let you come over that line. Again, that's really interesting to me because I actually see the phrase attack back as even though I may not have thought about it, I am intentionally escalating this. I'm intentionally driving this to a higher level. So when you say, yes, I'm going to devote more energy to it, I'm going to go on the attack. I do think of the idea of if I feel under personal attack, I'm not simply going to draw that boundary line. I'm not simply going to say I'm going to handle this in the calmest, most respectful way possible. I'm going to say, no, I'm going to match fire with fire. And I'm going to be as explosive as you are. I'm going to let you know that it could come down to one of those situations that you talk about in which I'm feeling particularly bullied or I'm feeling manipulated. And I'm going to say, I'm not going to stand for that. And not only am I not going to stand for it and draw a line in the sand, I'm not going to stand for it, but I'm going to come after you because I'm going to bully you. I'm going to show you what it looks like. And so there is that kind of fine line there that we're talking about where you see it a little differently than I do. Well, I think your word match is what I'm saying. I might match their energy, but what I'm hearing you say is I'm going to one-up it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get a little above that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to escalate this to the point that I come over top of what you're saying and come after you. And it's you who's going to have to find a way to respond to this. I think it's a semantic thing to me that if I am involved in a conversation that's highly charged and I feel I'm under attack, if I choose to go on the offense, I'm trying to generate enough energy to match yours so you can't continue to push in that direction and feels any level of success at all. And we're saying, and you're saying, and I'm certainly agreeing with you, that one positive aspect of that is that it does create a boundary. It does draw a line. It does say to the other person, you really can't cross this line and not expect to have your energy level matched with mine. So right. But it's not one we necessarily recommend. I mean, where we went to was that it's not among those strategies that we would say are particularly helpful in dealing with feeling this emotional charge situation in the moment and trying to address it as we stay in the moment. So maybe we could go there and talk a little bit about some of the options we think you have as a listener when you're dealing with communication and you're sensing that rise in emotion, you're sensing that elevation of the situation becoming charged. Uh, Thoughts? Do you want to come up with one in terms of a strategy we would propose? Well, for myself, if I feel the conversation, the attack the other individual's exercising is an intent to be manipulative. 
Okay, they're going to attack me and try and manipulate me into feeling something smaller, impotent, backed in a corner, whatever. That I tend to use a technique that I heard of a long time ago called fogging. Hmm. And what fogging is to me is it's the effort to create literally a fog, a verbal fog, a sense of vagueness around me where that person has nothing hard to hit. Hmm. Now, for most attacks, anytime I give a response that defends myself, that becomes the nest target for attack. And so what fogging does is it, by and large, begins to eliminate the areas that person can attack. For example, if someone says, you know, you never get the job done, you're really lousy at your work. Mm -hmm. One of the ways I can fog them is to agree with them in principle without really agreeing. Well, you might be right about that. There might be some things that on occasion I don't get done as quite as thoroughly as you or I would like. Now, that isn't real agreement. That isn't complete agreement. But that removes that as a target. So the, the beginning point of fogging is to offer an agreement that is an agreement in principle. You might yes. be right on that. So yes. coming after me and you say, well, you might be right on that. That's, that's a perspective that could be reasonable to hold. Where right. do you go next? Well, then I just wait. Because after I've said that, it's on them now to find another spot. Huh. Okay. They, they started about my performance, about my tat, my completion rate or whatever. And I've given them nothing hard to hit because I've agreed with them. Hmm. Could be right about that. You know, in that last assignment we're talking about, yeah, this didn't get as done as I would have liked it to. Now, when you think in terms of what do they go next with that, mm -hmm. they've got to continue to increase their energy to attack that point. Because I've not disagreed. Disagree and say, look, you couldn't be further from the truth. I got that exactly right. Oh, yeah? Well, here's the point. And then they would continue. Mm. So the major principle in fogging is to agree with in principle and then let them try to continue. What I'm hearing you say to agree with in principle is to not agree with in specific detail, but to say you might be right about that and let it go with that. The other interesting thing to me is to stop there because it does kind of leave a void that they have to figure out what to do next. And that's where the concept of fogging comes in. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So listening audience out there, one strategy you might employ, and I think it's an intriguing strategy to me because I don't do it. I haven't thought about doing it, but is to agree with them in principle and to then stop and let them, where are they going to pick up next? Well, and, and then they might change targets. Hmm. And start somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. You know, I hadn't thought of that. I can see what you're saying, that there might be an element of that that's accurate. Mm -hmm. But I'm not giving ground. I'm just suggesting the possibility that there's some truth in that, but we don't know what it is. Another strategy that I tend to employ, particularly if the person is important to me, I tend to employ a strategy where I drop into what I call listening mode, which is a discipline. And I think the key thought here is it's not just saying, I'm going to be a listener. It's realizing this is a discipline and you institute it or you don't. But if you decide the way I'm going to deal with this is to actually say, I'm going to be a listener at this moment in time and I'm going to actively listen. That is, I'm going to treat it as a discipline. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to paraphrase what the person's saying. I'm going to reflect on what they're saying and I'm not going to try to defend. I think that's the other key element of this is I don't say all that in order for me now to provide the comeback. I would say something like, so if I'm getting this right, your issue with me is this, this, and this. Is that right? 
Okay. And so I have mentally dropped into the discipline. I've shared this before, I think in a very early podcast when I was doing a workshop and a person came up to me after the workshop and said, you know, for a communication professor, you sure are a lousy communicator. And I thought to myself, you know, I I don't think you ought to share a piece of your mind. There's not enough to spare there, fella. But what I chose to do was say, okay, I will drop into a discipline. I'll ask this person questions. So what specifically about the presentation didn't you like? What specifically did you have concerns about? And in truth, in that particular situation, the person had no more feedback, but it diffused the situation. I didn't respond in what he would have perceived as a negative way. I responded with genuine listening and asking and clarifying. And so he had no ammunition. And so when he couldn't say anything more, we were done with that conversation. But essentially, it was diffused. So I think the wonderful part of that, Bob, and it's always true, is that when you drop into a listening mode and you start with questions as a form of response, you take control. Hmm. Mm -hmm. See, and this person attacked you thinking they were in control. Mm -hmm. And so when you choose to use questions, you've changed the locus of control to you. Yes. And for that remainder of the time that you're in that listening mode, you're shaping the direction of the conversation, not the person who's doing the attacking. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's an important shift. I mean, that's how you disarm them, because while they're ready to go emotionally, they're ready to unload. The fact is, the moment you take control and shape the conversation with detail, they run out of ammunition pretty quickly. That's a terrific observation. And I would say if I was sitting out there as a listener here and say, wow, yeah, you end up in control. What better place to be? And it sounds easy, but when you're in the moment and emotions are rising, it's getting extremely charged. You have to realize it is a discipline. You have to drop into that and say, I'm going to do this knowing there is a payoff. Because otherwise, what you really want to do is respond to the emotion of the moment. In this particular case, that will not be as helpful as you said, asking questions. And as a result of asking questions, without them even knowing it, you're taking control of the conversation and you're shifting it in a direction you would like it to go. See, I think that that's an axiom that people who haven't been taught to listen, people who don't listen professionally need to learn. Mm. And that is that the person who's asking the questions is in control. Mm-hmm. So many of us think that when we're talking, we're in control. Yes. We're in control of the conversation. But the truth is, if we're responding to a question, the person who asked the question is in control. And I can't tell you the number of people who seem oblivious to that truth that you cannot engage in conversation and have someone else ask a question that you respond to and not relinquish control. Mm -hmm. And the interesting byproduct of that is you are perceived as a listener. You're not Mm -hmm. perceived as a person taking control. Exactly. As a person that's actually attending to what I'm saying, which causes me to have a more positive regard for you because you're genuinely attending. You're not in a way responding defensively, even if internally you are. What you're demonstrating on the outside is I'm engaged in this conversation and I'm paying attention to what you're telling me. But indeed, as you said, without them knowing it, you are taking control of that conversation. Well, if our listeners need a a good example, beyond the idea of a therapist who asks questions, beyond the idea of a teacher who might ask questions, the discipline that learns to ask questions because it's a part of their success is law. Hmm. In the courtroom, attorneys are only allowed to ask questions unless they're making an opening or closing statement. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean they don't put in opinion. The difference between them asking a question and a teacher or a parent or a therapist asking a question, they don't ask questions they don't have answers to. Yes. And their goal is to ask the questions that drive you in a direction they want you to go. 
until they get the result they want. But it does show where the control is. The control is in the question. Yes. So what we're doing is saying to the audience, we've given you two strategies. One is fogging, which I find very interesting and intriguing. Two is listening. And the third one I would want to raise comes out of a book called Never Split the Difference, in which the author argues for asking calibrated questions. Although we could go into much detail about the concept of calibrated questions, essentially it's asking questions to get the other person to begin to think on your side of the argument. Right. The idea of we get into this argument and they say, you know, let's use your example. Uh, You did a terrible job on this. I'm so disappointed. Your work performance was really bad. And the question becomes, what would you suggest I do about this? What would you propose that I do differently? And what you've done is you've made a subtle shift from them making an argument that's on their side of the issue. They're looking at it and saying the work's not getting done to now being on your side of the issue. Tell me how you think this ought to get done. Tell me what you think I can do about this. What can actually be done about it? And the shift is really remarkable in terms of the subtle difference. Now, the author of the book was the head of the FBI negotiation team, and he was talking about the notion of negotiating hostage situations. And what you're wanting to do is shift to deal with the issue from your perspective versus from their perspective. And the moment you get that shift, you get a whole different element in the conversation. They're now, without knowing it, kind of working on your perspective. So I've always kind of liked that idea of asking the kinds of questions that bring the person to have to start thinking from your side. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to change their opinion. It just means they're actually working on the issue on a different perspective. Any thoughts on that one? Oh, yeah, I think that's very clever and very effective. When I ask someone, well, what would you have done in that situation? Or what do you think could have been done there that would make a difference? What I'm really doing is making them responsible for the problem. <laughs> that's a trick that, quite frankly, when you can pull it off, has a profound effect and mm-hmm. that the weight now shifts to them and is not on you. And they have to come up with an answer that would work. And very often they can't. Mm-hmm. They, they only have a complaint or they only have a critical view or they only have a shot to take. And they don't realize that in the same situation, they didn't have an answer. Yes. Well, I can't believe it, but we're out of time, Bear. We've identified three strategies of dealing with emotionally charged situations in the moment. May have more to come next episode, but at least we've identified three. But we did want to let the listening audience know that there are some things that you can do when the communication situation ends up becoming emotional, that you can do something in the moment other than go on the attack or simply withdraw or pull away. I know there's one other one we want to talk about, so we've got at least one more coming back next episode, but we'll deal with that then. The twins are done talking for today. Now it's your turn. We'd love to hear from you with feedback regarding today's theme or situation you'd like us to step into during a future session. You can reach us at twintalk 46 at gmail.com. Remember, no communication problem is so big, so complicated, or so intense that we can't make it larger, more complex, or more dangerous than it already is, almost effortlessly. And we'd like to thank Kevin McLeod for the score that both began and ended this podcast. 